This spring and summer have kept me away from the studio. Somehow it's already fall, and I'm just now wrapping up season two of Welcome to the Food Court. Welcome to the Food Court will start up again in the new year. In the meantime, I'm heading off to Rome in Italy, going to be speaking at a law school at a university called Louis, which has a prominent food law program and is starting up some interesting partnerships and collaborations. I'm also going to Rome to get married. And I'll note for my partner's sake that I ordered this chronologically not in order of importance. Then, when we get back, it'll be time for this year's Food Law and Policy in Canada conference. It's called Taking Stock. Last year, I co-organized the conference with Jamie Baxter in Halifax, where it was hosted by Schulich School of Law. We collaborated with the Devourer Film Festival. This year, our hosts are the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law, and it will be held from November 2nd to 4th. And we have 75 speakers from government, industry, universities, practicing lawyers to speak on many aspects of this evolving area. It's exciting stuff. Uh, we've got some really interesting collaborations that are going to be taking place uh, that I'll be able to fill you in on later. Uh, but come check it out or have a look at our website. It's foodlaw.ca. It's going to be a dynamic place to do some critical thinking about lawyers and law as it relates to food systems. But this isn't a podcast on my social and professional calendars. It's Welcome to the Food Court, a podcast hosted by me, Glenford Jameson, and supported by my law firm, GS Jameson & Company. We do great corporate commercial and regulatory work, primarily for stakeholders from all parts of the food sector. And when we're not doing that, we're researching, writing, or speaking on issues facing food and law. Okay, on to the episode. This is an episode I recorded last March when I visited McGill Law School with Amélie Gouin, a lawyer who does food law work at BLG Montreal. It was definitely early March. You can hear our depleted, beleaguered voices after a long winter in Canada. And I may have been sick. And I mean like sick sick, which is usually the death knell of podcast episodes I listen to. But I think Amélie and I do a reasonably good job of describing what we do. And, uh, and this was a really great event. I enjoy having the opportunity to speak at law schools with law students. The concept of fresh eyes, I think, is an undervalued one in law. So asking a group of will-be new calls in 2020 where they think food law is going is generally going to lead to a different line of inquiry than my day-to-day work. In exchange for those takes, which I value, I get to do a food law edition of Scared Straight by trying to answer the question, is it of value to pursue a career in this area? Emily and I, uh, we came to speak on the practice of law, what food law looks like as a career, on the ground, as practicing lawyers, and that's what we did. Scared straight. The student questions raised at the end of this episode, and please bear with the limitations of amateur recording in a classroom. Uh, they're excellent because they exemplify the broad reasons that students would come for a talk like Emily's and mine. Uh, people are interested in halal certification and product claims, food sovereignty issues, and employment issues in the agricultural or hospitality context. So definitely stick around for the questions raised at the end of this episode. I think they're valuable. In this episode, I also I reference a 
ton of mighty fine folks who I'd like to give shoutouts to and link on the podcast blog post. Lastly, shout out to Jess Citrin and Talia Ralph and the entire McGill Food Law Society for providing Emily and I with a jammed room and a hyper-engaged group of people who wanted to know more about food and law than they were able to glean from the classroom. The advice I often give to new law students is that you have this unreal mix of time, money, and credibility as a law student, possibly for the only time of your life. So if you have those three things, go make things happen. I think what the McGill Food Law Society has done is a great model for other law schools where there is a desire on behalf of students for this form of practical semi-outside-of-the-classroom discussions relating to niche practices and what they look like on the ground. So let's bring on the talk and the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you all so much for coming to our second Lunch and Learn of the McGill Food Law Society. Uh, our next Lunch and Learn, just so you know, will be on March 21st. It's a Tuesday. It'll be uh, at noon in this room as well with Professor Nadini. <coughs> and um, today, uh, we're welcoming Emily Gwen, who is right over here. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, she is a McGill Law alumna. She's an associate at DLG, and she specializes in... Uh, she could probably elaborate more on this, but I'm pretty sure she specializes in... Uh, marketing regulation for food, and uh, she also last year won uh, one of the top 100 most powerful <laughs> women in Canada, yeah. so I thought I would mention that yeah. the day after Women's Day. Um, and then to her left is Glenford Jameson, he's a Toronto-based uh, food law lawyer, food law lawyer, he's a Toronto-based food lawyer, <laughs> and uh, he has his own firm called uh, G.S. Jameson and Company, which he started, and he also has a wonderful podcast called Welcome to the Food Court, which you should all check out after this lunch and learn. Uh, so they're going to talk to us today about what it's like to be food lawyers and practicing food law, and we're really excited because I'm not exactly sure what food law is still. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really good question. We yeah. just had a conference on that. Yeah. So to try and answer that question, I think we're going to take this in three parts. Uh, first, we're going to talk about our experiences as practitioners. Uh, secondly, we're going to sort of enter into this question of, like, what is the practice of food law or what might that look like? And then the third part, is we're going to talk broadly about where we think it's going, which will be sort of relevant to all y'all because it's the where jobs might be growing and where opportunities might be for litigators and for solicitors uh, going forward. So I'm going to start. Yeah, and, and just before we start, we're, we're doing this pretty informal, so if you have any question at any time, just raise your hand or just shout out the question and we'll be pleased to answer. Uh, we, we do not have a PowerPoint, we do not have, do not have an official presentation, so it's really just a, yeah, we came a discussion. A quiet lunch among friends. Yeah, yeah. with 10 <laughs> person, but like, it's, it's pretty crowded. <laughs> so, so I'll start with, with my experience. I mean, like, on the longest timeline, I worked in restaurants quite a bit from when I was like 13 before I had an SIN somehow until uh, I finished undergrad, and that included uh, being a server and a bartender and a wine steward and a prep cook and, and did it at fine dining establishments and greasy dumps. And one summer I spent in Montreal, I worked with a person who was a, uh, she was formerly a lawyer at McCarthy Tetreau and started up a restaurant, which is now, I think, Liverpool House. Uh, oh, really? Uh, but it used to be called uh, Rue, so it was Vietnamese. Uh, and she was really passionate about both food and law. 
uh, but saw them as very separate parts of her life. She really pushed me to go into law school. Uh, but there was always an interest in, in food. I mean, my parents sort of had enough back to the lander in them to really sort of think about where they were procuring meat from and veggies and those sorts of things. So it was on my radar. Uh, at law school, I wrote a really terrible paper on uh, international trade and highly perishable items in the insurance context, which I've never read again. Don't try and find it. If you find it, it will be terrible. Uh, it was a solid B effort. Uh, I, in between those periods, I worked at a family and estates law firm. Uh, I learned really quickly that I was not interested in being a litigator. I was really interested in being uh, a solicitor or working more in the, uh, the contractual and commercial context. I spent a couple of years working on a, a horrific divorce that took 20 years to settle and sort of gave me an up close in terms of, uh, of what both of those sides of the bar is. And for you, looking at how you want to practice, that's a really important question, is what kind of conflict do you want in your life? But, uh, but that informs sort of my practice today, which is uh, it's a solicitor's practice. 70% uh, of what I do is corporate commercial work. Uh, so dealing with governance, uh, dealing with transactions, dealing with financings and, and contracts. Uh, and typically those are obviously food system players. And so we don't really focus on one or the other. Uh, so we deal with some hospitality, but a lot of distributors uh, and producers uh, and innovators, some, some startups, and then some producers. Uh, all of those stakeholders have unusual issues, but the thing they all share is they interrelate. So if you think about a recall and trying to trace uh, where things have gone wrong, uh, it, it affects everything up until where you find where the issue is. And there are issues in terms of insurance and liability and causation and those sorts of things. And so you can protect against that in contract to some degree. Food is unusual in that uh, typically very little IP applies to it outside of the common law doctrine of confidential business information, which is a huge deal. And again, that's all based on contract. Uh, and that's how you protect recipes and intellectual property in that way outside of trademarks, obviously, and systems, so patentable issues. My law is four years old, which is insane. Uh, it seems to track very much like human growth, and so now it's very demanding and high energy and uh, is taking me places I didn't realize I was going to go, like a four-year-old would, uh, and that's, that's pretty fun, but it uh, gets me a little worn out, and I'm thrilled to be able to come here uh, and do this. I think the academic context is really important, and developing food law in our law schools is really important because it'll enable us to create better food lawyers, first of all. We find that we're in discussions where there aren't any lawyers present, where there really should be uh, food law, both the agric agricultural context uh, and, and in the hospitality context and the retail context, has historically been one where handshakes were good enough and we had stakeholders that were tied to land, let's say, in the agricultural context, where you weren't relying on contract and relying on larger terms. And now, uh, with how our food systems are set up, it's about international trade, and it's about foreign exchange, and it's about global governance, and and that requires uh, a lot of lawyers and a lot of fine print and a lot of thinking about, about products and how they're consumed and how they're made and what's acceptable for all of us. So uh, it's been fabulous. I was able to put together and organize a conference last year, which was at Dow Law, which Sarah came to and which Emily came to which was uh, a lot of fun and showed us both how expansive yeah. the concept of food law can be. <laughs> uh, and there's going to be another one this year in Ottawa in November, uh, which is really exciting at the law school there. But, um, but those are sort of the, the things that I've been engaged in for the last Great. bunch of years. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I did my, I actually did my undergrad at McGill in political science and then did my law school at McGill as well. Um, I fell into food law really by... It's, it's, 
when I was in law school, I never thought of me as wanting to become a food lawyer, and I still don't exactly define myself as a food lawyer, um, and I'll explain to you why. Uh, so I did law school, I did the course of stage in 2010, um, and I work at BLG, and for those of you who started to uh, be interested in working in, in, in various national firms, uh, you've probably realized that food law is not something that is clearly defined. It's uh, Some firms start to have a uh, food law department, but normally uh, there's no food law department per se. So you really have to find your way and just create your own your, your own small department within a firm. So what I did is I started to uh, work in uh, civil litigation. So I'm a litigator at BLG. Uh, I do var var various things in, in litigation, but I've always had an interest in food, uh, mainly in nutrition and with the idea of just being the best version of myself and being the most efficient and the most, um, yeah, the, just the most efficient person in my life. And I think that nutrition is very important to get there. So this is something that drives me in everything I do. Um, and through my practice in civil education, I've developed a particular interest in all that relates, all that relates to false and misleading representation. So it necessarily includes false and misleading uh, representation in the food industry. Um, I did a couple of cases. I did when I started my practice. I did a huge arbitration case on natural health products, and it was based on false and misleading representation. And I realized that there was something huge on the market. Uh, and yes, it was a specific example regarding natural health products, but that that stuff that I learned during that arbitration was could be applied to anything. Um, so now I. I try to focus m most of my time on all that relate to Loi sur la protection du consommateur and the Competition Act. And as, as long as it relates to false and misleading representation, I'm, I'm like, okay, fine. This is exactly what I want to do. Sometimes it's on food loss, sometimes it's on telecommunication, sometimes it's on natural health products, sometimes it's, it's very, it varies a lot. But at least it's, it's, it's example that's that are similar to food law, and we see more and more uh, cases that relate to food law. And I've also realized, and we can talk about it, how to define food law, but at my firm, there's no food lawyer per se, but when you look around you, you realize, oh, you're doing food law, you're doing food law. You don't even know you're doing food law, but this is food law. And recently, if you've been following the news uh, in, in Quebec, there's various class actions that relate to food law. Uh, there's the Red Bull case, there's the Lasson case, uh, and there's the McDonald's case that, just, that was just filed. Uh, and it all relates to food. Um, and these are three recent cases, but there's some other cases that were, uh, that were settled recently. Uh, so it's something that is, is uh, very much growing and um, that I'm just passionate about it. And it's, it's just so nice to see that now there is a, a food law society at McGill because uh, during my years at McGill, it's not that long time. It's not, a long, this, yeah, it's not that long ago, but still, there was no food law society. Um, and when you get together with other uh, lawyers that are interested in, in food law, you realize that your, let's say my definition of food law is not necessarily your definition of food law or your definition of food law. When we got to Halifax, uh, we realized, oh, and, and I was like, oh my God, this is so much bigger than I expected because 
my definition is really publicity, marketing, false and misleading representation, and the, the, the consumer's right to know uh, the truth and to make sure that the product that they buy um, are accurate and truthful. And you realize, oh, there's animal law and there's environmental law and there's the right to have access to food. It, it's so much broader than, than, than what I expected. So I think that it's great to see food law society right now um, because you're the future of food law. Uh, and here we're just trying to define it and trying to make something out of it. Uh, and in 10 years, I think it's going to be huge. It's going to be like a whole new area of practice. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, that yeah. So that's that's pretty pretty much what I what I do and what I tend to do as much as possible. Um, Glenford is pretty lucky to just do food law, and I would love to do only food law. Um, but I'm I'm hoping that in a couple of years it's the only thing I'm gonna do. Uh, but for now, I like I still varies a lot, but oh, I love it. It's great. So, so the second part is, is talking about so what the what is the practice of food law? Let's let's think about about defining the area, uh, and so I want to make a couple arguments here. The first is as lawyers, we're surprisingly bad at organizing things. Uh, and you think <laughs> about uh, so if, if you're reading through old case law, the amount of times that we've reorganized courts, for example, from courts of chancery and of equity into the system that we have now in Ontario, it was completely rejected maybe 20 years ago. Um, and now it sort of makes sense, and that's good, but we're, we're constantly playing with things. We don't always get to logical outcomes. We're typically designing systems for ourselves. So uh, we explain things in a way that we understand, not necessarily in the way that non-lawyers understand. And historically, that made a lot of sense because you're speaking... Uh, so in a court situation, for example, you're speaking with opposing counsel and with a judge, all of whom are lawyers, so, so that makes a lot of sense. But... Over the, maybe the last 50 years, we've started to acknowledge that there are uh, groups of statutes that interrelate in specialized areas that require uh, legal expertise that isn't uh, contained within um, practice as a, as a corporate solicitor or as a, an estate solicitor or those sorts of things. Uh, and so I can think of a bunch. I mean, one is uh, in construction law. Uh, there are very specific liens that are set up and rights and obligations, and they particularly relate to various stakeholders in that chain, right? So contractors, subcontractors, property owners, landlords, these sorts of things. Uh, the same is also true in, more recently in, uh, in health law. Health lawyers uh, who, I mean, in large firms, a health law group can be like 30 lawyers strong, and there can be folks that exclusively practice as as labor lawyers within the health context, for example. But we're really looking at a group of, uh, say, five or six different statutes relating to pharmaceuticals and privacy and, uh, and, and hospitals and their foundations and how doctors are governed. And, and we've found that there's a better legal experience both for lawyers systemically and for clients if you have a lawyer that is intimately familiar with those five or six acts or regulatory frameworks. Uh, if you think about setting up a like a doctor's practice in the 80s before the advent of health law, you're dealing with a corporate solicitor, you're dealing with uh, someone to do some of your family and tax and estates planning, you're dealing with an administrative lawyer uh, to deal with the college uh, and, and to deal with any, any review issues, and then general litigators uh, who would work within sort of your, your insurance framework, whatever that looks like. So you've actually got a team of lawyers who would be maybe in different firms, and that would be tough to deal with. And today, I'm not saying that that one person exists, but there is a central node that understands how all of these things relate. 
Uh, I think the same is, in tr is true with food. The advent of, of food law and policy in North America is... There's an article uh, from the Seton Hollow Law Review from a couple years ago that points it in the mid-2000s, sort of like 2004, yeah. something like that. It's a weird article because in Europe, the concept's as old as time, I think. But, but in North America, we, sort of, we started to adopt it. And uh, the real change is, historically in the United States, there was an agricultural bar that would deal with the production of food, and there was an FDA bar that would deal with uh, more consumer-related issues of health and safety. And, and the argument with food law as a particular practice area is it takes those two nodes and then it thinks about the stakeholders that it affects and tries to find value in being uh, sector-focused as opposed to, to regulatory regime-focused uh, in thinking about how those, uh, how those stakeholders interrelate and what common needs they have or if there's a benefit afforded to them if you hire a lawyer that is specialized in this area. Uh, for me, the practice of food law would typically confirm that someone can come to my a person came to my office last week uh, seeking to do some review on a cheese import license that was denied, and I understand the dairy framework and some of the quota frameworks that are relevant, and and there's some international trade components specifically in the food sector, and those are all very familiar to me, and so I don't have to go and send an articling student or someone doing a stage to go and write a memo on me in terms of how they all correlate and to come up with an opinion or an answer for them, we can sort of like jump in. Uh, at the same time, uh, there are things that are, are completely within the food realm that have uh, that a, a regulatory lawyer would be able to deal with, whether they're dealing with uh, drugs or, or novel foods. It really doesn't matter. You're trying to get to the same place, and the context is less important. Uh, in commercial matters, I think, is where the benefit of food law is most evident, and that's we'll be dealing with uh, transactions or financings that have, uh, other than the fact that the, the target or the thing that's being financed uh, is, is a food business, uh, has very little to do with food, right? It's a factory and, or it's uh, a group of contracts or it's a license that's being transferred. But fundamentally, when you're doing commercial transactions or corporate transactions, you're concerned about can we can we sell a license? Can we transfer it? Uh, what are the risks of the products that are already on the market? Or are we assuming those? What's the liability look like? Uh, are we able to fill those contracts? What are our supply chain liabilities? Uh, do the regulators have anything to say about this specifically in a food context? Uh, and these are issues that again, because they come up regularly in my practice, I'm, we're uniquely situated to to answer in a way that most lawyers aren't. Uh, and our clients respond really well to that because as opposed to getting off of a conference call and going and doing some digging, we can, with a fair degree of certainty, respond to those things on the fly to keep things moving forward. And as a lawyer, as you can all imagine, things are time sensitive and, and with transactions, uh, there are always holdups and things, the longer they go, the more likely something isn't going to go through. So there's value in, in being able to identify issues early and, and to move them forward. Um, and then the last piece for me is uh, you're also working with a very specific group of people. There are cultural norms within the food sector uh, moving up and down the chain, which are often very similar, and being able to speak to those folks is really important. It works in restaurants, work with not-for-profits. We deal with uh, charities. Uh, I'm a director of, uh, of a charity that runs two organic learning farms or teaching farms in Ontario. When I work with ag stakeholders, I know what they're talking about. I'm comfortable with how they think and, and how they approach problems. And there's a, an increased ability to communicate with your client when you understand what they do for a living.
So, so what is food law? That, I think, is uh, the value of food law. I don't think that there's a whole lot of merit in actually narrowing down or closing down the discipline itself. But I think that that approach to legal problems is, is what I consider food law to be. And that's what our practice looks like. Yeah, because the question of uh, what is food law is pretty hard to answer. But I think that, it, and you did a good parallel with health law and how uh, in the various uh, law office, we used to have um, labor law, labor and employment law who would also do health law. And you would have litigation who would also do health law. And more and more um, big firms and even small firms, they have realized that it's much more efficient for the clients to have in the same group, for example, in health law, to have different lawyers who do different things, but they all specialize into one subject. So they know very well the subject. So when they meet the client, it's much more efficient because they can answer questions regarding labor and employment, regarding litigation, regarding um, corporate uh, issues, and they have the knowledge to answer the question. Or if they don't have it personally because they are not a lit they are not a litigator, they will uh, refer to someone else in the same group that specializes into health law. Um, so I think that food law is uh, a very similar similar issue. Um, it's much more efficient for the clients to uh, have someone who knows uh, the various questions around surrounding uh, food law instead of just going. Uh, to see a litigator and say, "Oh, we have, we just, uh, we 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 just receive a, a class action." Um, you, I'm like, oh, "Okay, yeah, I'm I'm a class action lawyer. I'll take the file." But that lawyer, does, yes, he knows how to litigate class action, but he doesn't know the issue necessarily. So there's a huge advantage for clients to uh, do business with lawyers who specialize into one specific subject because they know the various issues surrounding uh, food. Um, and something else that I think is very interesting, and I see it in my practice, uh, when you talk about like publicity and marketing and how business uh, advertise their, their products, uh, something that um, for me was... And I was kind of shocked at the beginning and how, how business, they, they sometimes they just don't know the regulation and the law. So there's a lot of education to, to, to be made uh, toward various businesses. Uh, but once they, they are aware of the various regulation and the various law and they know the limit of what they can claim and not claim, uh, you realize that in reality there's a lot of... Um, it's really a business decision, so they will waive the risk of following the laws or not following the laws, and they will take a decision based on financial uh, advantage. And yes, they will want to always respect the law, but they will really walk on a fine line, and it's fine. And it's it's it, they just they follow the law, but uh, you realize that as as the, the consumers get more aware of these issues and aware of uh, food laws issues. Companies have to comply with regulation and laws, and they have to be uh, very careful of what they're uh, claiming. Um, and there have been a couple of cases in food, but uh, even in, in the telecommunication um, field, it's huge. I don't know if you're aware of all the various fights between Videotron and Bell. It's huge. Like they're aware of it, and they're fighting one another. It's not only coming from the consumer; it's coming uh, from the various competitors. Competitors. So, uh, in the food law uh, industry, um, I'm assuming it's the same thing. Yes, we have class action that are coming from the consumers, uh, but they're pro and we're not aware of it because 
most big companies have uh, arbitration agreements, so it's all confidential and it's not public. But I'm assuming that, for example, Coke and, and Pepsi have a huge arbitration agreement, and they arbitrate probably all the time on various claims that they're doing toward one another, uh, and we're just not aware of it because it's confidential. Um, but there's a lot of pressure coming from various companies that uh, the broad public is not aware of. Uh, but it's a good thing for the for, for, from a consumer's perspective. It's a good thing because for the consumer, uh, litigating uh, a, a product is it's pretty expensive. Not not well, it's expensive, but it's also time expensive. It takes a lot of uh, of time. It's really stressful for the consumer. Um, so it's a good thing, I believe, that uh, to let companies fight among among themselves, it's, it's less expensive less expensive for the consumer, and at the end of the day, it's going to protect the, the consumer, so you're going to get the result that you want. Um, and companies are just getting more and more aware of, of the issues, but there's, there's a lot of education to be made. Uh, and I always get the question, oh, well, you're working for a national firm, so you're not on the consumer side. And like, well, the idea is just to apply the law and make, make food law a food law and all the various uh, products just uh, more f fair and make sure that the publicity and marketing follows the law and that the consumer at the end of the day gets an accurate product. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, yeah prevention to be made and a lot of work to be made with the companies to make sure that they respect uh, regulation and that what they claim is true and accurate. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, do you want to add something? Yeah, uh, no, it's tough. I mean, it's funny like, listening yeah. to this talk. It does sound, I mean, we were joking. Yeah, it it sounds a little bit like scared straight in a sense. It's like we came here with the view to really talk about what this looks like on the ground as a, as a career as practicing lawyers, right? And yeah. so fundamentally, you have to accept the, the transactional nature of uh, you're selling your time. And, and so this is going to be more practice or business focused yeah. in a lot of ways and thinking about... Uh, where markets are, where there's value for a client, um, when you're being a lawyer, how do you be a, a better lawyer, right? Like, how can you sort of uh, maximize the impact that your time can have on, on a client's matter? Yeah, because uh, when we went to Halifax for the first edition of the conference on food law, uh, and I think both of us, and we were discussing this this morning, we realized that it's, it's, it's so broad. There's so many issues. And us as practitioners, it has to be like it's really down to herd and it's really client focused and it, it's it's not uh, we're, we're not advertising for necessarily for a public policy group because they're not our clients uh, but there's a lot of work to be done there as well and and yeah and yeah. there is like this huge agricultural field and labor field that we're not involved in, but there was, uh, what's his name? And you did um, the podcast with him. Oh, right, Frank Portman. Yeah. Uh, so we had folks in And employment about, uh, and labor uh, issues. That was really interesting. Um, and just animal law. Yeah. I didn't think about it, but it's a huge, it, it's, it, it's gigantic. Yeah. And it's something that we don't necessarily do in our practice, but it, it's, it's there and it's, it's up for grab. Like, Who's going to yeah. be the lawyer advertising for it? Actually, a court case on it's being heard right now. It was heard this morning. Uh, oh, criminal really? mischief case. Uh, this was well covered in the media. Uh, it was someone uh, fed pigs that were in a trailer heading off to an abattoir or some water. Oh, yeah, and, I saw it, yeah. Uh, Are you writing a paper about this? Oh, did she? Yeah, okay, yeah. So her, Are you her... writing about this or not directly? Okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that hearing's on right now. Uh, so Camille Labchuk, who is a prominent animal 
law lawyer uh, based out of Harvard who is live tweeting it. She's sitting in the courtroom doing it. So follow that because really? it's fun and interesting. Uh, regardless of what your perspective is on it, it's fascinating, right? And this is like, how does the criminal justice system interact with our food system, right? I mean, this is something that happens every day. These uh, uh, pigs are taken to slaughter, so was the expression. Um, and there were a lot of um, articles in the in the news regarding food fraud as well recently, and how yeah. in Quebec there was a there was a sondage made by Elite Marketing, and how uh, Quebecers are really concerned about food fraud. Uh, so it's a growing subject and it's huge. And there was the Muchi Farm case uh, last year regarding uh, tomatoes that were advertised as being product of Canada and they were product from uh, Mexico, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's not it's not dangerous for health, but it's 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 really concerning uh, because you realize okay it's not that easy. Like you have you get products it's advertised as being local product and finally it's not. It's it's not dangerous for for your health, but still it's. Um, it's concerning. Yeah. So, and this is a great way to sort of hop into to the question of like, so where is where do we think food law is going, or why do we think there would be value in you pursuing a career in this area? Uh, and so, I would I would say that uh, I think it's tremendously valuable. I think it's incredibly valuable because it offers you an unbelievably creative area to engage in advocacy. Uh, People care about food right now yeah. uh, and have for the last 15 years. But prior to that, we were pretty okay with shopping on price. Uh, but a lot of our regulations are based out of the 80s when we were shopping on price. Uh, nutritional science is not settled in any way, shape, or form. It changes all the time. So when you're dealing with regulators, they're working on a precautionary principle. They're working with stale regulations. And they're working with unsettled science. Uh, meanwhile, technology is going way faster than any of us are yeah. able to deal with, to say nothing of government. Uh, so they're being thrown problems that they never considered uh, when, uh, and this is all in a regulatory context, uh, never considered when we were drawing up regulations or when they were drawing up manuals of procedure or ways of dealing with problems. And, and you get to sit there and advocate for your client. Uh, so where is food law going? Uh, with science changing the way it is and with our continued interest, both uh, growing interest from the bar and growing interest in the public at large, there are new interesting pressures on regulators to make decisions both from the scientific and from the public uh, or sort of political processes that aren't always going to lead to logical outcomes. And uh, it would be much easier to apportion fault in a traffic accident. It's way harder to to advocate for a client when, when everything is, is somewhat mercurial and, and that makes my job pretty fun. So I think it's going to be an expansive area and it's yeah. been a deeply satisfying career so far. Yeah, I know. And I actually would be very curious to hear you about what is food law for you. Uh, you're all involved in the McGill Food Law Society, so I'm assuming that you all have a personal definition of, of, of what is food law for you and why you're involved in it and what's your specific interest in it. I explained at the beginning that at first uh, I always had an interest in nutrition and my idea is like really to be the best version of myself and to, to be the most efficient in my life. And I'm really interested in law and necessarily like both, both subjects. I, I try to, to use both subjects at the same time, so uh, that's why I have an interest in law, and that's why I'm particularly interested in publicity and marketing uh, of products, um, and all that relates to litigation with regard to food. So I'd like to hear you, like, what's what's your interest in food law and why you're involved in it? Yeah. yeah. Actually, I'm not involved. Like, my 
this time attending Yeah. I really don't have any idea, but I was quite surprised when you were saying that it's like, like your practice is more transactional and commercial because my idea was like more la souveraineté alimentaire. Yeah. So more like the, the accessibility issue. So I was wondering, like, do you know if there are any openings and like interest in the in law? But you see, like this is one of the one of the subject that when I went to the conference in Halifax, I was like, oh, there's there's the right to access food that exists, and I didn't even think about it. So it really it's so broad that we need all kinds of people to bring in their input and to be able to define this new area of law. Because for now, it's it's really what we make up of it. It's like. You're doing transactional. I'm, do, I'm doing publicity and marketing with regard to litigation, and and Sarah is doing something different. You're thinking about sovereignty of, of food access. Uh, some someone else will think about animal law. It's it's so broad that we really need your input to be able to define the field. And it's the more as more and more people get involved in the in the field, we'll be able to define it. Um, but as I said at the beginning, there's no, there's almost no food law firm. Uh, Glenford has a food law firm, but it's it's, I think it's the only one in Canada. It's the, yeah, there's it's only food law, yeah. yeah. Uh, but in most national firms, you have you have teams that will specialize into food law, but they will be like civil litigator, corporate lawyers, uh, employment and labor lawyers, and. Yes, they will do some food law cases, but it's not, it's not going to be the only thing they're doing in their practice. Uh, so we're really at a, a cross point where we can define what is food law, and I think that it's what makes it very interesting and exciting. Yeah, and I, so I would add just specifically to food sovereignty uh, and building that into your practice. I think that the trick for all of you is probably, I mean, like Emily said, is, is trying to find some mission alignment. I think a lot of the policy advocacy... Uh, exists outside of, of legal practice entirely. So where I see it most is with uh, lawyers who spend a lot of their free time uh, working on these issues. Uh, so in Toronto, we have the Toronto Food Policy Council, and, and there's typically a lawyer on that. Carly Dunster was a lawyer who was on that quite recently, and she was an executive director of a not-for-profit for many years. So used her legal skills to advocate uh, and then brought that to the city, and that reports directly to Toronto Public Health which informs the city stand on everything from uh, food handler certificates to the city's position on CETA. Uh, and so, so that's the way that she's decided to make an impact on, uh, on food policy as a lawyer. Uh, I, again, I volunteer my time as a director at these two learning farms. I think they're super important. They teach people who uh, want to own a small farm and be a, a stakeholder in our agricultural community uh, how to do that. Uh, and I think it's it's really brilliant. That's one of them. The other mission is, or other, the other farm is uh, at a, uh, a part of the city, an you know, award that's been neglected. Uh, and so it's got a social justice mission about uh, building skills and capacity in the neighborhood. And I think that's super important as well. Uh, but I don't get paid for that. And nobody's going to pay me for that. <laughs> so that's something that I do because I think it's important. And that sort of goes back to a broader piece about uh, building a career that you find is satisfying. Uh, the work, my work professionally is satisfying, but I really take a lot of enjoyment out of 
things like recording podcasts or talking to folks like you or spending my Saturdays at a farm talking about different governance models and administration costs and budgeting uh, and dealing with ministries. So that's a long answer to a really complex question, but there you go. Yeah, but if I can add to that uh, regarding your practice and all the work that you do, you vol all the, the volunteer work that you do, um, it's really important. You're most, I'm pretty sure that you're mostly all involved in something uh, here at the law faculty. Um, and you're, you're going to realize that in your practice, uh, if you're used to being involved in something else than just school, in your practice, you will want to continue being involved in something else. Um, and it's just, it makes it much more interesting and it, it gives you the time to think about how do you want to orient your career because if you just work, 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 uh, and the, the couple of first years is just, you get feed some work by partners and you don't really choose the work you're doing. So if you get involved in something, it, it, it gives you the opportunity to just um, experience different things and, and think about what you want to do. And then you can come back and try to orient your career and choose your, the cases according to your interests and what you like to do. Um, but this is like, a, I'm sidetracking, just get involved in something. It's just When you first makes started it, at BLG, what yeah. were your kind of extracurriculars? Like, what were you um, I was a lot of, I was very much involved here at, at McGill and then it, during my fourth year, I made the switch because it was just uh, one term, one, one, one semester. So I started to get involved at the Young Chamber of Commerce, which is totally unrelated to food law, but uh, I just switched to the Young Chamber of Commerce, and I've been involved there for, uh, since, well, actually since 2011, and now I'm the chair of the board of directors at the Young Chamber of Commerce, so it's a two-year mandate, so it gives me exposure to startups, entrepreneur, uh, potential clients, it, it varies a lot, and I've realized that there's a lot of food-related uh, startup in Montreal, and that's why I, I know the two crickets company I was talking about because they they always give us the sport bar, sport um, the protein bar, uh, and we can give it as a gift for. Did you eat them? Not yet, okay. but I really want to eat them. It's apparently really good, and it's really high in protein, and uh, we'll see. But uh, it's pretty interesting, and there's. Yeah. It's so yeah. So I mean, mostly involved at, with the Young Chamber of Commerce, and also, we mean, did the the conference in Halifax, and we're involved in organizing the second edition of that conference. Uh, and I'm a lot, very much involved um, at the firm in various committee, including the recruitment. So I don't know if you're doing coastal stage. It starts next week. I'm doing like 21 interviews uh, for the coastal stage next week. So it's gonna be a pretty busy week. Um, so it varies a lot. Uh, but I try to do as much as I can in food law. So I did a conference. We went in Ottawa uh, two months ago, one month ago. Yeah. Well, yeah at, at the end of January, uh, and we're organizing the second edition of the conference in in, in next November. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. When I was articling, I yeah. had an axe grind with the city because we had a challenging mayor and food trucks were a thing and he was challenging food trucks and so I ah. in my spare time uh, worked with a bunch of truckers to create an Ontario food truck association to help lobby better uh, and that's what I did for fun as opposed to video games like it's, it's yeah. a thing. Anyway so, so like so yeah. I think that's a really important take is that your free time is valuable and uh, it can be well used. Hey. Yeah. yeah to what extent do either of your practices deal with products liability? 
Oh, I, I, I deal with product liability. Yeah. Uh, it's a competition act and the consumer protection act. So it's really product liabilities, false and misleading representation uh, regarding various products. Um, at BLG, uh, we do a lot of product liability regarding computers and cars and, and washing machine and stuff like that, <laughs> which is super interesting, but less interesting from my perspective because it's not it's not about food. Uh, but it's product liability in, in various law firms is huge. Uh, there's a lot of class action regarding um, product liability. Yeah. Do you see it as an area that's likely to expand? Like, I guess oh, definitely. Definitely, law? yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And regarding food law, uh, definitely. And here I was uh, I was mentioning a couple of cases uh, at the, beginning of, at the beginning of the talk uh, that regards false and misleading representation and it relates to, it's the same principle that applies. Um, it's the same uh, articles of law that, that, that are cited in, in the various proceedings. Um, it's a huge area of law and the consumers are getting more and more aware of it. And because of all the technology, they're just access to information, it's so much easier than, than it used to. Um, that it's, it's getting huge. And even in class action, you know how in class action you have the certification stage and then you have the merit of the case. So it's like two, it's like two step in, in, in one trial. And more and more um, defendants don't even oppose the certification. They just go straight to the merit of the case because they're just, they feel that they're just losing their time losing their time at the certification stage. Uh, so I'm pretty sure we'll see uh, interesting development on, on that subject in the next couple of years um but yeah yeah uh, and so i for my end i mean recently i was consulting with uh, cbc marketplace on the subway chicken scandal I'm yeah sure yeah uh, and i and so from a product liability perspective yeah. uh when i'm drafting contracts uh it's the exact thing that we're trying to protect against yeah. uh, in boxcar letters so if that happens and you're a franchisee for example then, uh, then you've got some recourse. But I think that the example of that is uh, is really wonderful. It doesn't cost, it costs virtually nothing to go and get products tested, which means that the consumer uh, or an advocacy body on behalf of consumers can hold product manufacturers and vendors to a way higher standard than we could before. Um, and, and that's, there's been massive fallout from from that, this like a DNA test that CBC decided to run in June of last year and again in November. Um, and um, yeah, so I think it's 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 a huge deal. We're in an era where public trust is a big problem, and uh, and so both on the the preventative side, on the solicitor side, uh, ensuring that there's enough sticks in a contract to ensure compliance is really important. And when you're cleaning up dumpster fires, it's going to get bigger and bigger. So yeah. Uh, Jess, yeah, you tell me where to go. <laughs> I choose Stacy. Yeah. No offense. I was really interested uh, when you talked about all the hurdles that, that uh, they were trying to go through with these this not new species of cricket that hasn't been eaten before, um, at least here. Um, I was wondering how that relates to completely novel like food innovation. Like, for example, um, people are developing lab-grown cultured meat and, and those types of foods, which there's no like no one has eaten it historically. So what would it take to get something like that to market, and, and have you dealt with anything like that? Yeah, sure. So that's, uh, what is it? So in the food and drug regs, it's like B.28. Uh, <laughs> the process for dealing with a food that we haven't really encountered or dealt with before 
uh, is stratified into two pieces. And so the front end piece, which is optional, is the novel foods determination. And so you can get an opinion from Health Canada to determine whether something is novel or not. If it's not novel, then it's subject to all the other regulations and laws that we have in this country, but you can sell it. It's on the radar. Uh, if it is novel, then you go to the second part, which is uh, essentially a pre-market notification is what it's called. And so you voluntarily step up to Health Canada and you say, hey, I got this thing. We should probably have a look at it, make sure it's safe for people to eat. Uh, and I know you have a process for that. And so then they take, uh, like I said, roughly two, a year and a half or two years to, uh, to have data presented to them to ensure that it is safe, to run tests independently, and to really probe the thing, and then come to a determination as to whether it's safe to put onto the market or not, or if there needs to be further work done, those sorts of things. And so, so with a lot of GMO-related um, products, the time to market has been really long because we've needed time to, uh, to figure out, is this safe? How does this interrelate with ecosystems? Uh, how does it cross-pollinate? Those sorts of things. Uh, but yeah, so they're definitely, there are clear systems in place, and they, they function reasonably well. They just take a really long time. Yeah, go ahead. Yep, so uh, we, we talked a little bit about uh, false and misleading representation. Uh, that, that uh, being a practical thing, was something that I, I came to really a lot to, to help Muslim community, is one really big thing when it comes to the new emerging trend of halal food. trend button is growing. This new thing, halal. Yeah, well, f first of all, if they claim food to be halal, it's, it has to. And if it's not true, uh, well, they're, they're violating laws and regulation. And they, they can get fined and they can get sued for it. So the first thing uh, to, to, to check is, like, is, is it true? Is it accurate? Because if they claim uh, specific meat to be halal, it's supposed to be halal. Uh, that being said... We all know that there are some cases where uh, they will claim a food to be halal and it's not. Um, I don't have a specific case, but I'm assuming it's been the same thing for any kind of food. They will just claim it and take the risk of getting caught. Uh, but normally, companies, they end up being caught and the fines are pretty um, pretty intense. So, so I don't know if you've had any cases regarding this. It was specific. a super hot topic. I mean, yeah. uh, I think it's but, a great question. Uh, for everything that is like... Um, Biologic uh, in English, but yeah, everything is organic. It's huge, and there's like it, it, the the process of getting the organic stamp is is pretty pretty hard and pretty long to get it. Um, I don't know if there's a specific way to get the halal stamp, uh, but if there is none, I think that the first thing uh, that you should do is create an association to define various uh, step and regulation to have a stamp uh, that, that, that provide the consumer with the insurance that it's really halal. No, uh, there is yeah. there is there's multiple yeah. uh, or certified agencies, yeah. I believe. There's, there's now Canadian legislation, uh, in terms of by 2018, I believe, everyone yeah. who says they're halal has to have some certified yeah. agency yep. have a yeah. yep. 
lot of people still have that. Yeah. It's really fun, though, right? Is there a problem? I mean, so so this is a more historical one in the Jewish community, right? And so so there's uh, the Council of Rabbis, and that's sort of like you see COR on on kosher products in Toronto, and those are typically observed by by the Toronto Jewish community. And then there's MK, which is, I believe, Montreal kosher. So there's sort of like slight distinctions between the two. And uh, and the lawyers I hang out with in Montreal who are Jewish sort of like poo poo the other and it's like it's <laughs> like its own sort of competing thing. But we're talking about we're talking about private verification, right? So organics is a really interesting exercise because we've decided to create an organics regulation in the uh, in our agricultural products legislation. And so we have clear standards and we have a clear framework and we have clear enforcement over uh, how those organic when you call something organic. Uh, what standards they're made under, uh, whether they're harmonized internationally or whether they're specific to Canada. Um, and, and there's a, a feedback process that's continuous, but it's all through governmental processes. This is the Canada Organic is specific to the Canadian government. Uh, whereas CORE and MK and uh, uh, marks that have to do with the ethical treatment of animals, for example, have nothing to do with the Canadian government other than that the, the feds have said uh, we acknowledge that there are private verification standards and, and it's kind of up to the consumer to demand that their standards are clear. Uh, and they can't, like Emily pointed out, uh, they can't uh, create an erroneous impression yeah. as to the nature of the product. Uh, so that gets us into, into like various uh, halal or kosher marks. It's like uh, which imam is setting up which version of halal is really challenging, right? Because it's, it's, it really isn't a black and white issue. It's, uh, there are certain differences. Like I'm not an expert in any way in this area, but I'm sure the, within the community there are different ideas about what halal might mean. And so, so the idea is to let government step back and let individual communities develop marks that they're comfortable with. And then as a consumer, you can sign on to those marks. Uh, and, and so I think OceanWise is a great example of this, right? And so OceanWise tries, uh, is, identifies uh, sustainable seafood or seafood that's harvested with sustainable practices. Uh, but they're not accountable to anyone other than, I guess, the Vancouver Aquarium, which is where they're based out of. <laughs> um, and then ostensibly the Food and Drug Act uh, in making sure that they're clear or not lying. Uh, but we are seeing some, I mean, we call it greenwashing or ethics washing, where you've got fairly loose standards saying, like, this this is totally ethical pork. Uh, and then you sort of you do some digging. And play. things like CBC Marketplace are great for this because they have the resources to do it. They look behind the curtain, and then they find that often, that, not often, but that perhaps is not the case. So finding standards that, that you're aligned with is really important. So you're totally right. And the feds have stepped in and basically said, like, we acknowledge this, but they're going to have to be specific as to what kind of halal they're talking about. I think that's an immense benefit to all consumers generally because the more that we know, the better we are to able to vote with our wallet. Can I just yeah. add something on that? Um, if you're interested in that, you might want to read the book. I don't remember the full title, but it's called Kosher, and it's the history of kosher regulation, mainly in the U.S., and it talks exactly about how there were a lot of conflicts at the beginning and everyone like, couldn't really trust what the labels were and how they got to get to the point where today is actually very trustworthy and it traces mm. how this private regulation has worked better than state regulations, so state-based labeling has been not as effective as private in this particular context, so there's maybe lessons to be learned from it. So yeah, it's interesting. Like the Jewish community immensely grow because everything that's kosher is halal. Yeah, so yeah. Nice, that sound like <laughs> 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 You're good to go. Yeah. Um, I like to suggest something. Yeah. I, I, I just building 
on, on what you were saying is what you're about to account in, in the sense that like those um, uh, governmental steps or whatever approval are also there because of, of like lobbies also and that like I, I feel that for instance organic and organic uh, like some little producers or farmers here in Quebec are too too small to pay, yeah. to pay actually to get the, the label so but they might be producing organically as well so it, like there's a big market I guess the, the greenwashing yes is, is a good is a good word for that because there's a big market for it and regulations are also a way to get advertising and it might be like oh but for look we have this product and we are like organic and so I feel there's there's this side also. Yeah, it's it's super rigid. It's super rigid, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so the the feds have stepped in and made a very clear uh, statement as to what organic is, and that has upsides, which is it's it's tough to get, uh, and the fields that you're growing on need to be of a certain condition, and the way that uh, people tend to it is like very specific, but it's also completely inflexible, and so if if you're okay with a little spray and you want low spray fruit, it's like it'll never be organic. And if it's grown from an orchard that was at one point low spray, it's probably still not going to be organic. Mm -hmm. So as a consumer, uh, the, there's still a space for the private market to create marks or for, for a farmer's market to somewhat a producer at a farmer's market to say, like, this is how we produce our, our meat. Frankly, that's probably better than going to Loblaws and picking up some Blue Goose. No offense to Blue Goose or Loblaws. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but the organic standard exists for an important reason. I think it's super effective for those that fall underneath it. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution, and that's why, I mean, just like in the halal community, like, you can, like, tell people how you make your food. It's great. like for anything, you need to draw a line at some point. And it's uh, organic stem, for example, is, is pretty harsh for a small producer, but... If we, don't if we don't have the standard, what's going to happen? So at some point, uh, the Fed had to draw a line, and that's the line, and that's the law, and you need to follow it, even though it's pretty inflexible for a small producer, but it's probably better this way than without the regulation. So it's, it's, and you always have advantage and disadvantage for any laws or regulation, um, but you have to look at the big picture and say, okay, Am I? Is it more advantageous than disadvantageous? Uh, I know that it's 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 bad and it's harsh for a small producer, but for the consumer at large, is it better that, that way? Um, and there's a lot of debate around it. Uh, it's not a. It's never a black or white uh, issue, but um, yeah, we can debate it. And depending on on your interests, we're, we're not gonna have the same opinion. But at some point, you need to to find a solution that is good for the majority of the of the industry. Yeah. Jess, you share this. I share. You share. I, oh, I so share this. Us. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, got it. So you mentioned your, um, how food law also interacts a lot with agricultural um, law and issues in that way, especially in terms of contracts and things like that. So um, you're both based out of the East, obviously. Um, what, are, what Do you have any interaction with, let's say, the prairies and, and a lot of those Um, agricultural producers out there and kind of what's your take on how food law is going to impact those industries. I know it's really very prevalent, but it's not labeled food law all the time. Agricultural right. law or agricultural yeah. business, agribusiness, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so yeah, because I'm not, I'm not really, I, I mainly do civil litigation, so it's mainly based in Quebec, so I'm
I'll yeah. let you answer. I mean, you may like, I think the answer for both of us, I mean, what you're saying yeah. too is, uh, as a as a private market lawyer, someone who sells their time for money, uh, ultimately <laughs> you're going to be reflective of of your environment, right? So, so I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't act on behalf of uh, of anyone that runs four sections in Alberta. Uh, there is the Canadian Bar Association is slowly going to develop a food law and agribusiness section. And there is, uh, in order to do that, it needs to first exist at the provincial level. And in Alberta, uh, a lawyer from Northern Rose, I believe, uh, Kathy, I forget her last name, I'm gapping, but she's, she's created uh, a section to accomplish that. So that area is active, but I think that you're right. I think that it's, it's less integrated into the supply chain, and it's, it's more sort of acknowledged as, as, as large-scale farming. Um, yeah. I well, so it's I'm kind of assuming that yes. I think that in the future, everything that relates to food will slowly integrate itself into one sub into one f- very broad field. But it's it's really hard to predict the future. We don't know where it's gonna where it's gonna take us. It's gonna take us, and we need some people that are interested in that specific field to bring it into food law. So it's really up to who's involved in this new area of, of law and. We're, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's new and we're, we're defining it, so. So I'd say like there's uh. two competing factors. One is uh, wild-scale aggregation of ownership uh, that's occurring, which is shocking, frankly, as a consumer, but really interesting as a lawyer. Uh, and so that would be driving uh, monocultural production and sale of grain. Uh, if you want to buy grain in Ontario... Uh, you can buy bulk conventional grain, which will be from the West somewhere, but they won't be able to necessarily say Manitoba or Saskatchewan or Alberta, which is fine. It's all fine, but you just don't necessarily know where it's from. Uh, but if you buy from Ontario, you can essentially choose the producer you want it from and understand the varietal of grain that they, they're growing. Uh, and so uh, consumers really like that right now. Uh, and so we've got two competing market forces, one from the supply side and one from the demand side. And so it's going to be really fun to watch, I think, is probably the answer, because um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, George, did you have a question? Yeah. I was just wondering if you could speak to maybe the opportunities in, like, an intersectionality between international trade and food law or food policy, um, and maybe, like, what, a, what career opportunities would be there? Like, is it in the realm of, like, sanitary and sanitary to barriers to trade? I'll talk from my litigation pers- litigator perspective. In terms of litigation, there is a lot, you'll see a lot of uh, civil litigation that involve uh, parties from different countries, and you have a lot of arbitrations uh, that involve parties from different countries. Uh, one example that, I, that comes to my mind, I was involved uh, in a huge international arbitration regarding natural health product. So it's it's not exactly on the food law, but it's, it's pretty much related. Uh, and it was... Um, and there's some some of these arbitration and litigation in, in any field of law, uh, but in that specific case, it was a, a U.S.-based multinational of uh, natural health product who sold 
euh, is Quebec Division to uh, Entrepreneurs in Quebec. And in the, 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 in the transaction, they were, they were relying on, on representation and warranties regarding all the products. Uh, saying that the products were legal, were legal that uh, it was uh, they, they confirmed to all the regulation and everything was fine and the claims that they were, they were making was 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 right, uh, true and accurate. And down the line, like let's say about one year into buying the companies, uh, the new owner, the new Quebec owner, realized that it was about I would say like 50 to 75 products that were false and misleading. So all the Publicity and marketing claims were um, false and misleading in some some ways. So for some of the products, the claims were just false. For some other products, the the there was the, the NPM, the the natural health product numbers was 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 wrong, uh, or the description of, of what was supposed to be in the product was not really what was in the product. So and it was an arbitration clause in the in the contract. So they they sent a notice of arbitration against the U.S. company. Um, and finally, like they, they, they got back all the money from the sale of the companies and they were able to use that money to uh, put back the companies on track and make sure that all the, the, the products were complying with the various regulation. But it was pretty intense. It was, uh, and, and among all these products that were false and misleading, it was like the top 15 uh, products. So without these products, it was uh, a sheer bankruptcy. Uh, and they finally were able to save the companies. But yeah, so yes, there is um, possibility of in, in doing international arbitration. Uh, but it's, it's, I think that when you're a student, you have this idea of, of, of practicing in international law, but you realize that there is no such field of, in, in, in national firms, there is no international law department. You're going to, you're gonna work into international arbitration or litigation that involve uh, multiple jurisdiction, but it's not gonna be in an international law department or international trade department. It's gonna be in corporate law or in litigation law, and you're gonna have files that involve parties in various jurisdiction and that involves applying different laws. Um, but it's not that that it's not that clear. It's not it's not a clear department. Um, and we have this idea of, of going right. into international law, but it doesn't, it doesn't really exist in, in, in national firms. Yeah. We have time for one more question. Talia, if you have one. <laughs> we'll hang around and talk. I'm wondering if you can both speak to sort of like what I see as the sideload nature of food law in some respects. Like we talk about how like you can be a labor lawyer, you can be a trade yeah. lawyer, and and I find coming from like an interdisciplinary food background, it's hard to sort of think about how your area affects another. And I'm wondering how you deal with that in your practice and how you see that um, developing over time. Because I think that in order for the you know food movement or food uh, advocates to be effective, there needs to be a lot more communication, communication in between and collaboration. And uh, I'm not sure, like as practitioners, if you deal with that in your day to day or how you see that. I think it's a pretty interesting question, and I think that as a as a food lawyer or lawyers that are interested in food law, um, we need to be aware and stay conscious of 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 the fact that there is various field of law that relates to food. Um, and I, I keep going back to the Halifax conference because I went there with a marketing and publicity perspective, just based on false and misleading representation, and 
After two days, I went home and was like, oh my God, it's so much bigger than I thought. So we need to be aware of it and we need to, to just keep an open mind and be interested in various areas of law because uh, my, area of, my area of law will um, interfere with other areas and it's really important to just communicate among ourselves and keep a, an open mind because it's very, it's, it's so broad. And I don't know if you want to... Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure I entirely understand your question. Yeah. So, but, but for me, when I think about my practice, uh, you're trained in these siloed areas of law. And then we see uh, the food system, right? And, and so in a sense, I see it as a matrix. And so I've chosen very specific areas of the law in which I practice, in which I've got expertise, and I feel confident in my ability to offer exceptional legal services, irrespective of if it's a mining corporation or unwinding a family estate or uh, working with, uh, uh, with, a, uh, with a food charity. Like fundamentally, at, like at the corporate level, I feel very confident in those skills. Uh, and so choosing those silos of services that you wish to provide is important, right? Like, I, I don't do labor, I don't litigate, I don't own robes, I don't go to court. Like, these are things that go, <laughs> I don't do crim. Like, all of these things are parsed out. And so for me, like, in a traditional sense, it is actually a pretty narrow area of law in which I practice. Uh, and where it gets interesting is, is when you sort of cross it with that y-axis of uh, of food systems, right? And thinking about how things interrelate, how policies affect things, how to advocate at a regulatory level or between parties, and the sorts of things. Uh, does that answer? Kind of. I'm more thinking, like, I come from a restaurant labor perspective, so even something like advocating for restaurant workers in a class action context can be detrimental to an entrepreneurial, like, small or medium-sized business context. And sort of when you're looking at, like, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, how you mitigate, like, you know, giving your services and approaching from your perspective and how that may, like, negatively or, you know, not necessarily negatively, but, like, affect just the next person over or the next person up to the chain. But okay, like affecting other areas of, of the law that relates to food law, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not an easy question. It's a trick question. This is inherent in being a lawyer, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the role of being a lawyer, and I'm sure in, in your final year, final semester here, you do it, like a professional ethics course. And it talks about uh, like, like yeah, the role as a yeah. mouthpiece as a hired gun versus having uh, an obligation to the laws and upholding yeah. good standards and those sorts of things. And they're really tough questions to answer generally for counsel. Uh, for me, I have a wonderful luxury in deciding uh, if a client approaches or a potential client approaches me if, if their values are sufficiently aligned with mine to, to work together. Uh, and we, do, we don't charge for consultations. We sit down with clients, and, and it's almost more of a test of fit than anything else. Uh, whereas if you, I mean, so if you work at a large firm, uh, these are all businesses, right? Yeah, and because in a large firm, when, when a client approached you to, for, to litigate a uh, a class action or a file, uh, there's various questions that you need to ask. Yeah, is the subject, is, is the file, is it a good file? But also, is the file big enough um, that it's worth taking it? Because our legal fees are pretty expensive. So if you're a very small business, uh, we might tell you, well, you might want to go to another smaller firm because it's going to be too, too expensive. And then there's always the step of uh, clearing the conflict. So wherever we have a new file coming in, we're going to take the time to clear the conflict. And we have someone at the firm in charge of 
making sure we don't have any conflicts of interest. So he's going to go like in, in the database and make sure that we we don't represent um, an opposing party. And sometimes we do, and, in, and we make sure with the party that it's fine, and we set up a Chinese wall, which is not a real wall, it's just it's a... IT wall. <laughs> Doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. well, y y you're laughing, but when I was in bar school, the teacher that taught us, uh, uh, it was, who was talking about Chinese wall, he was like, no, no, like, there's really a physical separation in the firm. I was like, no, no, it's like, it's, it's IT separation. It's, it's, it's not physical separation. Um, anyway, so, and I remember when I was at McGill in the first year, we, we had, like, a oral presentation, and we made a real wall, and I, I kind of thought it was a, a real thing, but no, it's not. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we clear conflicts, and if there is no conflict, then we can take on the file. Um, and it's it, if you have the leisure of choosing your files, it's great. You can always try to align uh, your value on your files. And normally, if you have an interest in a specific field, you will try to, to get files that are re really interesting for you. Uh, but of course, you're not going to be able to take files that goes against your client's interests. Uh, if they're involved in the, in, in the same file or in a very related file. So it's more a question of uh, organizing the work. Um, and if you're in a big national firm, but, well, it's there's uh, someone taking care of this. So, yeah. All right. It's so, really case uh, by case. I was just wondering if you guys would leave us with, uh, want to plug, like, one or two of your favorite restaurants or food shops <laughs> in Toronto and Montreal. Oh, food my God. Yeah. <sighs> You can name, like, three. It's tough. I took last Tuesday off, and uh, there's a food journalist by the name of Steve Delinsky who's out of Chicago, and he's, like, the chair of the world's 50 best restaurants and a hilarious and amazing human being. And uh, we drove around Markham and Scarborough to nine different places. Oh, my God. Syrian, Palestinian, uh, Sri Lankan. Um, Markham is, like, a like, heaven of food. Yeah. It's a great place. Yeah. It's a great time. So, so no specific plugs, but... Uh, Markham. Generally, as a region, <laughs> this is a very rich area of the country that you should check out if you have time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about my favorite restaurant. I don't, I don't think I have a favorite restaurant, but I have favorite type of food in Montreal. So I'm a big fan of Indian food, and I'm a big fan of uh, sushi as well. But Indian food is pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I... I, I I actually don't really cook. My boyfriend do does all the cooking, and he's pretty good. So, shame <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So it, it's it's pretty much like me coming home, and my dinners is just ready. So, <laughs> so I don't know. Like I feel pretty lucky, but um, and because he's so good at cooking food that I'm, and now I'm very. Uh, I'm a very good critic, so normally when I go in, in any restaurant, I'll be like, okay, that's good, that's not good. Or <laughs> So I'm pretty harsh. Uh, but yeah, well, in Montreal, you have so much choice. Mm -hmm. And you don't have, there's some restaurants that are very expensive, but there's so many good restaurants that are not expensive. Um, and I'm actually really into taco right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like a wave this year. I know it's, it's crazy. so good. Like, uh, there is a yeah, I know there is one on Jean Talon and there's another one on uh, Saint Denis. It's so good. I mm -hmm. go there all the time. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you guys yeah. so much yeah. for having <laughs> us today. That was that was really yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for uh, inviting us. Yeah, thanks for Yeah, yeah, Thanks for coming.
That was Amelie Gouin and myself at McGill earlier this year, 2017, at a McGill Food Law Society talk on what life looks like as a food lawyer. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, there'll be more content coming in 2018. I'm excited to put it together. I'm doing some planning for it now. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or ideas, don't hesitate to send them on to me. We'll speak to you then.